This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you. 
to examine, in this particular case, the relationship between capital, state, and culture at the current moment. Since we last met in Riverside, we've witnessed both the intensification of the police state and the renewed energy of culture and social movements as sites for challenging its power. This is probably best illustrated by the US Black Lives Matter protests, uh, by the recent uh, serial killings of an armed young men of color at the hands of the police that have led to the increased visibility of the repressive state and its apparatuses, and by the dialectical relationship amongst race, political economy, the law, and the state that determines all these uh, developments. And I think the job of a robust, uh, critical uh, cultural studies, cultural studies that matters, cultural studies that can still claim to be a radical political and intellectual project is to understand, study, explain, and help transform this state of effect. So let's do that. Thank you.
She's held several international fellowships and was a Montgomery Fellow at Dartmouth College in 2015. She's currently a professor of creative writing at Brunel University, London, and she has won many awards for her writing and criticism. She's been elected fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, made a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and she was appointed MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honors List in 2009. In some ways, Bernadine Evaristo illustrates the global nature of this particular crisis that we speak to. In another way of putting it, to evoke either Star Wars or a cultural critic, Bernadine Evaristo illustrates to us that the Empire can strike back and that the Empire, in her case, will ride back. Without further ado, Professor Bernadine Evaristo. Thank you, Magan, and uh, thank you very much to the Association for inviting me to give this talk. <clears throat> um, I hope to open up for discussion the ways in which British history, identity, and creativity are policed by the cultural gatekeepers. In my 2001 novel in birth, the Emperor's Babe. I created a young black female protagonist, Zuleika, whose parents had travelled from ancient Nubia in the Sudan to settle in Roman London, Londinium, in 211 AD. 2,000 years ago, for a period of 400 years, Britain was a colony of the Roman Empire, a multicultural empire that extended as far west as Britannia, across Europe to the Middle East, and dropped down to cover the whole of this empire was the precursor to the British Empire that over a thousand years later would begin a global domination that would eventually see it control a fifth of the world's population through its colonies and hold dominion over a quarter of the Earth's land mass. The Emperor's Babe was indebted to the book Staying Power, A History of Black People in Britain by Peter Fryer. He wrote, There were Africans in Britain before the English came here. They were soldiers in the Roman Imperial Army. The soldiers Friar is referring to was a legion of Moors who were stationed at Hadrian's Wall in the north of the country. It was in staying power that I also first discovered the black presence from the 1500s onwards, all of which is recorded and archived. Indeed, in the 1500s, there were so many blackamores in Queen Elizabeth I's realm that she twice issued a warrant to have them banished both times without success. To hear that this presence in Britain was so old was astonishing news to someone such as myself who had been told, as we all were, that people of colour had only migrated to Britain in the 20th century. In time, I would discover that the policing of British history had effectively omitted any aspects of its past that did not collude with its narrative of itself as a historically white nation that was only now being sullied by the darkies arriving at its shores. It was my ambition with the Emperor's Babe to challenge this myth of black history that only began after the Second World War, when the British government sent a clarion call to its colonial subjects to relocate to the motherland, to restock its depleted workforce. This mass movement of immigrants who began their new lives as alienated 
and unwelcome denizens became known as the first generation to which my Nigerian father belonged. For the first generation who had been invited to Britain, the message was nonetheless soon broadcast loud and clear from the rooftops. You are alien to us, you don't belong here, we don't like you, go back to where you came from. This generation was the seedbed for subsequent British-born generations, as well as later immigrants, who now constitute a significant demographic in British society. Out of a current population of some 64 million people, 14% of us are defined as black, Asian, or mixed. The irony is, of course, that Britain as an island has long been settled by outsiders. The English are descended in parts from the Anglo-Saxons, comprised of various Germanic tribes who migrated there following the end of the Roman occupation in the 5th century. The name England, or England land, translates into the land of the angels from which Anglo is derived. Britain's historical origins do not preclude, however, the kind of tribalism that rears its ugly head when there are differences of colour and culture that are automatically regarded as barriers to communication as opposed to invitations to interact and learn from each other. It's the tribalism that rears its ugly head when people feel threatened by those who appear to be different to themselves and when one group feels superior to another. In writing The Emperor's Babe, I was careful to ensure that my protagonist came from the Sudan and not Egypt. I wanted the reader to imagine a very dark-skinned black woman, as opposed to Hollywood's version of, say, Cleopatra, as played by the famous English Rose actress Elizabeth Taylor. However, my conceit was challenged by the curators at the Museum of London where I carried out some of my Roman research. They argued that as there was no evidence for a black presence in Londinium, my story was unfounded. I counted that my assertion was not archaeological, but logical. Surely as Rome extended into Africa, and the empire had, as we know, very good roads, and as Rome itself was a multicultural hub, there was every reason to believe that black people found their way to Londinium. The curators were not convinced. Their perspective limited, in my opinion, by an inherited sense of Britishness and deep-rooted tribalism that overrode common sense. There might not have been any evidence at that stage, but they could not even entertain that it was plausible. In any case, I was, and always will be, utterly logical, in that, as a writer of fiction, I can imagine any kind of world, real and imagined, past or present, or anachronistically, both. The problem is that the long history of people of colour in Britain has yet to fully challenge received notions of Britishness. Even its own slave history has until recently been obscured, partly because there was not a huge physical presence of slaves in the country itself. The drama series, Roots, first aired in the 1970s and broadcast to the world the history of slavery in America, which was eventually taught in British schools. Contemporaneously, British people remained ignorant about our own country's involvement in slavery, which was not taught in British schools until 2008, that is, eight years ago. It was only during the national commemorations in 2007 of the bicentenary of the abolition of the Slave Trade Act in 1807 that it was felt that Britain was finally fessing up to its own role and culpability in the transatlantic slave trade. 
Britain was the largest, and for much of this period, the most dominant slave trading nation in the world. Filmmakers tend to celebrate the English hero abolitionists, as opposed to focus on the brute reality of how Britain perpetuated and benefited from slavery for centuries in the New World, and how slavery became the economic bedrock upon which Britain's prosperity was built. These days, most Brits are likely to have heard of Mary Seacole, the Jamaican nurse who in the 19th century opened the British Hotel during the Crimean War, offering food and nursing to wounded soldiers. In her time, she was as celebrated as Florence Nightingale. Her autobiography, The Wonderful Adventures of Mary Seacole in Many Lands, became a bestseller in her lifetime. However, she disappeared from the history books until after her death in 1881, until academics resurrected her reputation a hundred years later. But most people will not have heard about the ancient presence of African Roman soldiers or the hundreds of years of settlement and intermarriage from the 1500s. Sometimes, we artists get there first. The Emperor's Bay was a work of the imagination in which I created a playful, irreverent, anachronistic parallel universe where a black Roman London girl is married off to a rich Roman. She gets to hang out with her bezzy, a drag queen called Venus who runs a drag bar called Mount Venus down by the docks. And she becomes lovers with the historically real African Roman emperor set to me as Severus when he comes to town. Severus was from Leptis Magna in what we now call Libya. Even though my heroines endures marriage to an older man, I didn't want to present her as a victim, but as a feisty and triumphant young woman in the universe within which she has to operate. My protagonist was never going to be a slave or serf, but she is someone of means. This often surprised readers who assumed she must hold a lowly position. They were imposing, or rather transposing, the much later anti-black racist ideology that developed to justify slavery and the subjugation of Africans by Europeans onto an ancient Roman society that was actually devoid of it. Years after my book was published, archaeology is finally catching up with the discovery of an African Roman presence that goes beyond the walls at Hadrian's Wall. Archaeologists have been re-examining Roman skeletons unearthed over a century ago with their more sophisticated forensic techniques are detecting many more African-origin people in Britain during the Roman era, including a rich African-origin young woman known as the Ivory Bangle Lady. The response has been one of shock at her discovery, but doubly so because she was a high-status individual, as indicated by her stone sarcophagus and the richness of her grave books. I hate to say I told you so, but I cannot help so, British history is heterogeneous. Multiple cultures have infused our shores. Not only the earlier settlers from Angelin, Saxony, Jutland, Frisia, Rome, and Jess Africa, but also later settlers from the 1500s who came from virtually everywhere else on the planet too. Yet our national memory is amnesiac, and our collective identity continues to be predicated on a history that makes invisible the truths that do not fit neatly into the perspectives and timelines of a strongly policed official British history. Consequently, there is still a barrier to understanding that British history and therefore identity has been more inclusive of different races and cultures than has previously been admitted. 
Here is one example. Two weeks ago, the BBC concluded its drama series, The Hollow Crown, with productions of the Shakespeare plays, Henry VI, Parts 1 and 2, and Richard III. The British-Nigerian actress, Sophie Okinedo, played the lead role in all three productions, that of the French woman, Margaret of Anjou, who became the wife of Henry VI, and therefore the Queen of England. It was a bold step for the BBC to cast a black woman in such a role, and it is testament to its new commitment to representing diversity that such casting is considered conceivable. Needless to say, there was public dissension from some quarters at the casting of Okinado as an English queen. They were, they, they were countered by those who argued that it is called acting and she is playing a part. But the truth is that there was a black presence in Europe during this period too. And while the Queen was not known to be of colour, we seem to forget that the Iberian Peninsula was colonised by the Moors for 800 years until 1492, during Margaret's lifetime, and they also invaded Gaul. We forget that Gibraltar is only eight miles from Morocco. We forget how close Africa is to Europe. Many Europeans probably have an African ancestry and do not know it. Cross-racial casting is no longer considered new and daring in British theatre, which is an improvement on much of the 20th century, when theatre companies refused to cast black or Asian actors in period roles on the grounds that it would be historically inaccurate. That's not to say that this tendency to exclude is completely obliterated. As evidenced by Sir Trevor Lund's production of The War of the Roses, a distillation of four Shakespeare history plays into one last year, this caused a furore because he cast 22 white actors and no actors of colour. The Actors Union Equity stated, To present this benchmark of British heritage in a way that effectively locks minorities out of the cultural picture literally flies in the face of the huge conversations taking place in British media at present, of the very real progress made in recent years to include diversity in our industry. So Trevor Lunn answered his critics by saying he had cast according to historical verisimilitude. Yet we all know that Mr. Shakespeare played glass fast and loose with the truth, creating, for example, an utterly venomous character in Richard III, who bore almost no relation to what is known about him from historical evidence. The point is that Sir Trevor Nunn, one of Britain's preeminent theatre directors, is incredibly powerful. He was the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company for nearly 20 years and artistic director of the Royal National Theatre for seven years. He is now artistic director of Theatre Royal Haymarket. He is still at the heart of the theatrical establishment. He is a gatekeeper, a policeman at the gates of theatre, and he is deeply tribal. His successor, Nicholas Heitner, was artistic director of the Royal National Theatre from 2003 to 2013. During this period, he mounted 206 productions on the main stages, of which only 15% were played by women, of which only 20 were four productions sold authored by women. This is still an improvement on his predecessors, the worst of whom was Sir Peter Hall, who produced four plays by women in 15 years at the National. In 2008, Rebecca Lenkovich became the first living woman playwright to have a play performed on the Olympian, the largest stage of the Royal National Theatre in its then 45-year history. To my knowledge, the National Theatre has only ever staged one play 
by a black British female playwright, Winsome Pinnock. Let's turn to screen drama, which powerfully nurtures and polices the public imagination. It explores our sense of ourselves, our realities, our histories and identities. Its impact on our consciousness can be seismic. Its audiences can reach the multiple millions. For much of my life, people of colour have been too absent from it in Britain, and rarely in positions of power. This was recently brought to renewed public attention by one of our leading actors and comedians, Sir Lenny Henry, who delivered a broadside to the film and television industry in 2014 at the lack of black and Asian representation in the sector. For example, in 2013, 99.82% of television comedy shows were made by white directors. And the annual Top 100 Theatre Power List is usually comprised of 98% white people, the majority of whom are men. Why, why, why is this? My detractors will say that it's because women, people of colour, just aren't good enough. This is all nonsense, of course, but what we are dealing with is centuries of tradition and inherited entitlement, and an often invisible phalanx of resistance to changing the status quo. We are also dealing with women who were historically excluded from positions of influence, from leadership roles, from working while being married, women who were traditionally homemakers and mothers. We are also dealing with people of colour who have not traditionally been to the most elite schools and universities and have access to the networks that operate beneath the surface of power. The 1980s and 1990s saw a movement of many alternative arts groups and at one point Britain had some 35 black and Asian theatre companies. Aware that there was very little work for us in the industry, we took control and formed our own theatre companies. I myself co-founded Theatre of Black Women, Britain's first such company. Today there are about three of those companies remaining and perhaps four artistic directors of colour of our leading theatres or companies. What's happened? Public funding support was withdrawn, companies disbanded, people moved on, sometimes into the mainstream. We thought then that the battle was being won because many actors began to break through into visible positions in the arts. What we didn't realise was that there would be a barrier to us taking the helm in the mainstream. That what we were witnessing was a kind of window dressing. We would be the performers, but not the puppeteers. We didn't realise then that we would not become the next generation of ADs, chief execs, funding officers, and senior theatre and arts personnel who decide what kind of art is promoted, who decides on the nature of our culture. The gatekeepers, those who police entry to the arts, especially its upper echelons, are exceptionally talented at perpetuating their own status quo and, sorry to say, egos. And by that I mean that they promote the arts that speak to them, their tastes and notions of quality defined by their gender, race, education, cultural interests and, when they are being inclusive, their understanding of communities beyond their own. Their so-called objective evaluation of art is based on whether it is relatable to them. Many outsiders are resigned to this, to being assigned a peripheral, secondary status. I am not. The consequence of this cultural hegemony is that audiences are too easily designed, denied arts that are not defined by the establishment. Artists are denied the equality of opportunity that leads to lifelong careers and artistic freedom. Is it no wonder that so many black actors take flight from here, from America? where their careers take off. 
In literature, I have witnessed how the publishing gatekeepers opened up and then shut down access to publishing. The 1950s saw the emergence of Afro-Caribbean male writers who were published in the UK in some number. By the 1980s, most of these writers were, for various reasons, no longer publishing. For a decade, from the mid-90s onwards, British novelists of colour became fashionable, which was worrying at the time, because trends are just that, ephemeral. My fears were realised when most of the writers who came up with me slowly disappeared. Nor is there a new wave of novelists coming through. At the same time, I've noticed how the deceptive beast of tokenism and celebrating the exception makes this situation of crisis appear otherwise. I admit that I am one of the exceptions, in that, I, in that I have had a relatively long career, at least for my demographic. My long-term publisher is Hamel Shelton, the literary imprint of Penguin Random House, and I count myself among the lucky few who are still publishing and working with superb editors who allow me complete artistic freedom. As one of a handful of such novelists who continue to publish, I am acutely aware of the wealth of stories that are missing from my bookshelves and from my younger generation's education and imagination. What will our legacy be from this era when so little literature is getting published? There are thousands of years of Black British history to be explored by artists before the Romans, after them, the Tudor period, Victorian Britain, Victorian Britain, now the future. But what happens is that those who do make it inside the citadel dare not speak out in case they are injected as cannon fodder over the turrets into the wilderness below, or they enjoy their positions of special privilege too much to want to speak out. And those who clamour at the walls are too easily unheard, ignored, swatted away. I feel it is my responsibility, from a position of relative privilege, to shout about it. Ten years ago, there were two black female commissioning editors in British publishing. Now there are no senior black editors in the major presses. Access to arts initiatives do spring up over the years, but they seem to function as box-ticking, tokenistic gestures. We are still not in positions of influence inside the publishing houses or producing, directing and writing the screen, television, theatre dramas or leading other arts organisations. So the industry sets the agenda, the media follows suit, academics too, to a certain degree, follow hot on the tails of the media and thus the canon is constructed. New black-led publishing houses do spring up, but without private backing they tend not to last long. And it's hard to be competitive in a publishing and news media industry that has a history and reputation that began operations, in some cases, such as the Times of London in the 1700s, or Faber of Faber Publishers or Penguin over 80 years ago. Very little black British, British literature is taught in the UK, and there is only one degree course specialising in it in the entire world the MA in Black British Writing that is now one year old at Goldsmiths College, University of London. Some contemporary literature courses are known to have all white and sometimes nearly all male reading lists, even though the student body is often primarily female and sometimes quite brown. Europe's first Black Studies undergraduate degree was launched at Birmingham City University just two weeks ago. Since 2011, the Running Meat Trust and the Office of Higher Education Statistics Agency have collated the statistics on the UK professoriate. Out of a total of some 17,000 professors in British universities, a professor is the equivalent of a full professor in the US, 
92.4% are white, 20% are female, but only 60 professors are black, of which only 17 professors are black women, of which I am one. You do the percentage stats on that one. I can't. I really can't. So, what is to be done? How can we move forwards? I've realised I've focused on fiction, but literary advocacy and activism in the poetry world has managed to make a difference. A 2006 Arts Council report that I initiated into the crisis situation for poets of colour in publishing revealed that under 1% of poetry books are by poets of colour. I subsequently initiated a mentoring scheme uh, for talented poets of colour to be mentored by many of Britain's leading poets. As of 2016, 20 poets have thus far participated in the scheme, and it has already yielded great results, with over 80% of the poets having their own collections published, or due to be published. And to date, they have won or been nominated for over 40 awards, including winning some of Britain's top poetry prizes. This year's Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award went to one of our mentees, British Chinese poet Sarah Howe. Navajo Adams, British Somali poet Orson Chira, collaborated with Beyonce on her recently released visual album Lemonade. Her poems interlink all the song tracks on the album. Better still, last year the percentage of published books by British poets of colour went up to 6%. A new round of 10 poets has just now been selected for mentoring. The poets we have mentored have also been networked into the poetry scene because we realised that talent alone was not enough. They are now editing special issues of poetry magazines, touring the poetry circuit, judging prizes themselves, and teaching at universities. History has taught us that we need to keep the pressure up, keep enrolling new cohorts of poets into the programme so that they reach critical mass. We do not want one or two celebrated individuals who effectively obfuscate the fact that others are not getting published or are marginalised. We want schools of poets who are established, who become part of the establishment, who are at the centre of poetry in Britain. Today, we are hopeful that the tipping point is on the horizon. One of the challenges in Britain is that racism, or more palatably, for those who take personal rather than institutional offence, unconscious bias is not part of the national conversation. The conversation doesn't happen unless there is a racist murder, after which there is a national, morally upright outcry that exposes and explores frontline racism, but avoids the more subtle, powerful, and pervasive discrimination that is ultimately more pernicious. There is also a conflict between perception and reality, the myth of a post-racial society versus a still systematically racist one. We live in a culture of self-congratulatory post-racism, and it's only when the statistics prove otherwise that there are temporary grumblings in the press. Moreover, the arts in Britain is too often undervalued, undervalued if it falls outside of the parameters of certain codes, modes, aesthetics, experiences, histories, communities and knowledge bases. Issues of race, culture, identity, gender, history, diversity, sexuality, inclusivity and representation are consigned to the sidelines by the ruling gatekeepers. This also applies to art that tackles racism in Britain. The cultural elite approves of art that, for example, exposes America's injustices, for example, Claudia Rankin's deservedly celebrated poetry collection, Citizen, but it congratulates British writing by writers of colour that avoids racism. How many times have I heard a novel praised? 
because it's not about racism, usually by a critic or judge who, I imagine, has no idea what we write about but has made this unjust assumption. Now, perceptions of Africa through its literature have also been endorsed and shaped by the publishing gatekeepers who decide on what is published and applauded. In 2012, I chaired the Kane Prize for African Fiction, a prize that has helped revitalize the fortunes of African fiction since its inception in 1999, to the point where it became a new trend about 10 years ago. The previous three winners of this prize had won with what some call poverty porn stories. In this case, stories about brutalized children struggling to survive in a depraved version of Africa. I asked how a continent of 54 countries and over a billion people could be reduced to such a narrow trend three years running. But these stories mirrored what publishers chose to publish at that time, and the media chose to champion. African fiction was in danger of mirroring the Western media's perceptions of and preoccupations with the continent. I had to persuade the jury against allowing one of these stories onto the shortlist. They didn't get it at first. They liked the story about tragic Nigerian children left to fend for themselves in a very dangerous situation on the streets. It was moving, heartbreaking, shocking, etc., etc. Of course it was. Put young children into endangered situations in fiction and you will have the reader on your side. I eventually did persuade them and the story was left off the list. It's not that these stories are not valid, but we need the full spectrum of narratives from the entire continent. The Brunel University African Poetry Prize is a project of mine designed to revolutionise the fortunes of African poetry which, a few years ago, was hard to find on the literary landscape. Since 2011, working closely with Kwame Dawes of the African Poetry Book Fund at the University of Nebraska, who had then just began to publish poetry collections by Africans and administer prizes, this began to change. Most of the poets shortlisted for my prize have subsequently been published by the African Poetry Book Fund's New Generation African Poets Chapbook series. This is the poet's first step towards publishing a full-length collection. Five years on, these 21 poets are starting to make a name for themselves. They will, I hope, be in the vanguard of poets who are shaping the future of African poetry. Initiatives such as these, where we are proactive in making an intervention, are important and game-changing. But I firmly believe that we have to work from both outside and inside the Citadel, and to keep the pressure up. If we don't, there's a hell of a lot of backsliding that happens. I also believe in quotas for the arts industries, especially that are accountable to the public, such as in the UK, the BBC, and Arts Council-funded arts organisations. Without quotas, liberal sentiment abounds for little changes. The old boys networks, the Oxbridge networks, continue as they've always done. In Britain, we need to establish our own arts projects and initiatives. It's happening already, even if they operate on a small scale, even if we feel we've been there before, which we have. It's better that we set up our own arts organisations, even if our work reaches a smaller audience, if the alternative is to not get our stories out there at all. We need to produce our art on our terms, as artists and cultural producers, as well as being influentially represented at all levels in the powerhouses of cultural production.
we talk a lot about broad cultural discourses. Cultural discourses that position their subjects within them in ways that have them both positioned but also imprisoned. And, and that position is incredibly powerful. It's analogous in some ways to um, writers who talk about the gays, right? The gays in the sense that the subject is imprisoned within the, the look, the ideas of those who create them. Um, some years ago, I did a study on Jamaican managers in Jamaica. One of the things that was interesting are the ways in which these managers, positioned as they were within the discourse, the broader discourse of colonialism, what that meant, right? So how you come to understand your country as a colonial, um, as a post-colonial context, and how you come to understand yourself as operating within that, had enormous impact on how they saw themselves, enormous impact on the choices they thought they and therefore it almost impact on how they chose, what strategies they chose to use to manage. This idea of being positioned within discourses, we talk about communication comes from um, communication scholars says that communication, communication as we deal with talk, but also social texts of different kinds, media and other kinds of texts, are incredibly consequential and are not merely reflective, but are creative of are enacted of, are enabling of, are constitutive, are constitutive of social reality in many respects. And as I, as I heard you talk, much of what struck me is the idea that there is a, a, a sort of a network of, a sort of racialized cultural discourse that has, that has positioned both artists, has positioned how we understand not just what art is, but what black creativity is, and whether or not that, um, that body is capable of creativity, is capable of reflection, self-reflection, is capable of narrating its own situation in the context in which um, it finds itself. And as I heard your presentation, I heard you speaking back to the ways in which that is both created and reinforced through gatekeepers. Um, but it's also perhaps, I think, it's a question that we can explore whether um, artists themselves, like the that I looked at, finding themselves positioned within these broader discourses, find limitations in even the choices that they seem to make, the choices that they think of as being available to them. Um, I'll, I'll say this and then I'll stop with more questions. One colleague and I, engaged in an ongoing study currently in Jamaica. This is a study that has us looking at Jamaican theater. And in the study of Jamaican theater, we're looking at theater as an artistic form that in Jamaica for very specific reasons, largely to government policy, has been used as a tool of developing national identity and of building an identity post-colonialism. So theater, has been, theater and other art forms in Jamaica have been used very carefully by the government in the 1970s and 1980s to develop um, a response to Jamaica being a colonial country, a, col a post-colonial culture, that was meant in very specific ways to counter that. 
thought is that while artists in Jamaica, largely in the 1950s and the 1960s, sort of embodied the idea of what art meant as they understood it in the British context. So we imported the idea of the British pantomime. We sort of took the tropes and the ideas of the pantomime and we put it on stage, but we reinterpreted it using Jamaican stories. But we sort of created a hybrid we were very, that, that generation of artists was very protective of, was very protective of what it meant to do with theater. What theater was. How theater was, was meant to be understood. And a lot of those conventions lined up very nicely with what they learned in, in the artistic forms that were repeated to British So we were creative within it, but we still very much existed within the norms. Also, found that a new generation of artists that were insurgent. What we claim to call, what's called in Jamaica, Roots Theater, a group of artists who unapologetically embraced a black aesthetic and throughout, literally throughout, many of the conventions of theater that are come to be accepted. Right? So, for example, you walk into a production and instead of finding that there was this artificial separation of the audience and the stage. The stage becomes its own imaginary world. The stage became a part of the So you could see people walking across the room during the performance. You could see people um, as the performance was going on um, doing things backstage that you know and more than that, rather than having a fixed script, the artists play off of the audience with, with the kind of creative improvisation that was quite exciting to see. So the performance that should have been, or maybe would have been built for two hours, could last three, could last four hours, depending on the improvised nature of the interaction with the audience. It was a really interesting phenomenon to see. We realized the interview and talking to them that this was very important. That they understood the conventions as they existed, but they were also very deliberate in their intents to, to disrupt, to build these conventions, to create new theater forms that did not have any allegiances to the older forms that were there. I guess my takeaway using this example is the idea that the policing of culture, this, this positioning, of black bodies within cultural norms and discourses, artistic, cultural, and otherwise, through media, through arts, through other kinds of social texts. It's very powerful, very real. And, and, and you spoke incredibly well to that. Hopefully there are also glimmers of hope in artistic forms, in elements of cultural production that are incredibly insurgent, that seek to challenge them, that seek to upend them, that seek to find, provide glimpses um, in much the way that writers like Lang, Selwyn, or Lovelace, that seek to provide glimpses, ways of reinterpreting, rethinking, rescripting what that discourse is.
conversation with some young people there. Another young woman during a conversation making a passionate argument about living in a country where she felt like she, she was not free to go and be where she wanted. That her every movement, she talked, told the story, going to a particular server somewhere in the outskirts of Cape Town. And they were accosted by police. They kept asking them what they were doing. In particular, they didn't think of themselves as being a threat. They were just walking around. This was a largely Southside black settlement. And the police accosted them simply because the black bodies were in a space where they weren't supposed to. And she said, I'm tired of being in my own country. I'm feeling as though I don't belong here. I'm tired of feeling as though I'm in my own country. And I have to apologize for where I go, for where I am, and for where I find myself. So I'm tired of it. She's an educator. And she sees the way of changing that as being involved in education and involved in politics. That gave me a lot of the history of South Africa. And it also spoke to the pervasiveness of this policy. The ways in which this transcends and occurs throughout the diaspora. It's a conversation we could be having here in the United States with young people. In fact, are having in the United States with young people. Here in the African American So it's, it's multifaceted, it's pervasive. Um, it's, it's, Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Morris. Because again, the key here is understanding these other narratives that you know of of realities that are not being you know given full play. That are for all kinds of reasons, but mostly political and means to power. Whoever wields the levers of power, you know, get to, to to define what narratives are told, and uh, and then thinking about it on the other side, thinking about how some of these writings, you know, that are emerging in the 20th century and suddenly in our in our time, uh, are trying to write against that that kind of power, you know, coming against that, um, and finding new ways of expressing these realities. I was just thinking about, uh, with reference to the to the instance you gave about the King Prize uh, uh, fiction, African Prize for fiction, um, which, like you rightly pointed out, started in 1999 and now has become one of the very prestigious prizes in you know, African literature, uh, fiction writing that, that we know of, um, and, and and the idea you know. You point out that was a peculiar experience you had when you had to say, All right, we've heard enough of this that kind of narrative, or at least not enough of it, but as much as uh, a continent of 54 countries or so, I shouldn't and can't be defined by this one narrative uh, of child soldiers of, of, of extraordinary passion. And, and the like, that there is more, you know, the, the, or as uh, Chimamanda Chose, the 
balance of stories. Uh, the, the, the desire, you know, the need for a balance of stories. But I was also thinking about, you know, yes, that is, you know, there is much to be, there's much to be said about that. But thinking about policing of cultures, I'm also thinking about that, turning to Africa, I'm thinking about this other dimension to this idea of policing that is still informing the realities of many parts of that continent. Um, there's something going on lately in places like Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, Uganda, uh, where we have a powerful you know, group of, you know, powerful groups, mainly coming from the religious sector, you know, uh, who are invariably, you know, especially say Christianity sector, uh, who have not been coming so much against many African festivals, many African cultural practices because they are heathenish, they are pagan, they are devilish. They are differently demonized as acts that do not reflect you know, what should be considered Christian values. And so you now have a kind of a coming against, you know, of practices that you think are traditional to many of these African societies. So there are those, and then of course, the one that is very much more, we are all more familiar with in Nigeria is the, the specter of Boko Haram, uh, a group that literally, you know, name literally means anything Western is Haram is, is abominable is not acceptable. So now here comes another kind of another level of, of resistance, another level of policing, uh, in a very literal sense as a way of culture. But a culture that is being that is coming from again the very particular kind of hegemonic uh, practices or spaces that these African writers are supposed to be coming against. In other words, there is a kind of reversal of the dynamic of the very cultural production of policy that we're talking about. And the question I have, or one of the things therefore that, that, that I'm thinking about is, what is the nature, what kind of nervous condition, as it were to borrow from Fanon, what kind of nervous condition of the person, of the subject from this colonial or post-colonial side, what is the kind of nervous condition that can the kind of circumstance or the kind of society where the very things, the very agents that have colonized that have actually placed them in this kind of inferior situation can invariably be the very tool they will use to suppress their own very understanding of self. Uh, and so it gives a kind of complexity, seems to me, to the very constituents of cultural production and uh, in very Always in one direction. 
um, that there are ways in which, again, even these cultures and practices that are policed are invariably uh, redefining and making complex the very culture that is being defended, the one that is being, in fact, advanced. And so,
wake up what you should be. It's humiliating what you should be. Its essential argument is because she is not part of the industry. And to fight against this, it's so I'll, I'll defer my response and take a Or challenge your notion of Britishness, or did you know it, or 
what? So, so what did you think? Did you think, oh, this is interesting, or? Sort of fascinating, and, and I appreciate the challenge to the dominant historical narrative. And, and um, saddened but not surprised when you were told uh, no that never happened. Yes, so, so what is your, have you been to the UK? One time. Right next to council property. Council property is from 
literally the same street. So it's a very integrated city. 60% of black men in Britain um, have white partners, and um, something like now about 40% of black women have white partners. So we're very integrated. You know, when I first, uh, one of the first times I was in New York, I turned into 125th Street in Harlem, and I was so shocked that suddenly all the diversity I saw on Broadway had disappeared. I know it's changed now, but it had disappeared. Whereas you won't get that in the UK. We mix together, okay? We, you know, um, my father came, he married a white woman, had mixed-race kids. That was the sort of beginning of the kind of integration that, that now is the norm. You will see white women with brown babies everywhere, right? Especially in the big cities. But that still doesn't change the people who are controlling the society. Enough. It doesn't change it enough. I mean, those statistics, I think, are shocking. So, um, so that's the problem. It's about getting us into positions where we are in control of everything that we do as much as possible. Uh, so what you experience is, is, is the reality. And actually, I do have a question. Um, so so what, you're, what you're, I'm from North Africa. And so the way I'm looking at these issues of race and class and gender and diversity in the US, you know, and I study, you know, I'm a okay, so really different perspectives, um, but also different time frames. I was in the UK in the 80s and, you know, in the in the 90s. But the question I have is what Europe is going through and what the US is also experiencing is this backlash, right? So here we are talking about moving forward where the gatekeepers are actually pushing us backwards. And so the question is not just how to keep the momentum going, but how not to reverse the little gains. I mean, they are significant, but nonetheless, how not to reverse what has already been achieved. So the challenge I feel is even more so as we think we are producing more um, knowledge that's troubling the gatekeepers. So the question becomes what kind of activism, what kind of strategies you know, are appropriate for the kinds of resistance that we have. Some of it is visible and some is masked by political correctness. Yeah, I agree. So we have a, a political party called UKIP in the UK and they've actually set the agenda for Britain to leave, you know, to have a referendum which is happening very shortly to decide whether or not we're going to leave the EU. And their big agenda is really immigration. You know, they are very you know, they're, they're, they're treading on very thin ice in terms of being slightly fascistic. So um, if, if, they, if they do leave the EU, it would be a boost to their political power, which is extremely worrying, because at the moment they're a very minority uh, uh, political party, and so we have been able to push them away. But actually, we leave the EU, and it will be a sign that the British public, because the big issue for lots of British people is immigration, um, whether it's whether the economic side, uh, you know, economic refugees or political refugees or whatever, um, it will be a sign that we're regressing even more than we are at the moment, and that's deeply worrying. So you have Trump, right? Follow Trump. I didn't use the word. Yeah, and then, and then we have this, this kind of move to isolationism in the UK as well, which is very worrying because we haven't got so much in many ways. You don't want to address, but that seems to be what happens. Mm -hmm. I, was, I, I have a question. What happened to you? When I lived in the UK in the 80s, there were some of those trends that you mentioned, uh, mixed race patterns and so on and so on. I 
felt as though there was no clear mechanism by which people of color would rise the centers of power in the Because those had been so deeply entrenched for generations. Oxford, India, government. Uh, it felt like that, like that privilege was such that it would be quite I think I think people do on an individual basis, and that's it. Yeah. So there is progress. There, there is some progress. Yes. Yeah. We, we have we have lots of uh, politicians of colour in Parliament. We didn't have that in the eighties. They were like four. Yes. Yes. I was thinking about the yeah, reflecting on my adverts. There's a measure of singularity to the, the resistance, the resistance narrative that you offer, you know, it comes by way of convincing other jurors about expanding their, you know, their choice of, of those to shortlist or select, uh, setting up a, a new enterprise in order to address a need. And I'm just wondering then, you know, is there a way of how, what are the kinds of ways that would be more collective, that would, that, that would be maybe reach to a more systematic, you know, that would get to, to say the heart of the matter or the system itself. Uh, what are the kinds of possibilities that we have something more collective? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think that's something we have to look at very seriously. But because we don't have the people in academia, for example, you know, America is very different. 80 million people of color in this country. I don't know what that is. You have a huge uh, intellectual body of people who have the, uh, the kind of organizing power that we don't really have in the UK. So when I say there's 17 black women professors, I mean, that is just outrageous. So, um, so yeah, but, but certainly community organizing, that's what we used to do. That's what we did in the 70s and 80s, and I feel perhaps we have to get to that. But I find that I can get things done if I just go and do them. Yeah. There's also that, that um, yeah, sometimes you can get held back by community activity and organization. All right, we'll take the last question. I'm very much sensitive to time. Okay, this is a very good question. I was very impressed by all that you have done to promote black poets and black writers, etc. And you ended with a call to create our own institutions. And Maurice, I think, uh, made a call to experiment with the poetry and with the literature. So my question is about the link between these two things, like what kind of institutions uh, do we need to create in order to experiment with the poetry. Um, in contrast with talking about um, the same thing, like repeating the narratives of identity, like you know, creating identity as opposed to just repeating it. That's a question. Well, I mean, I, really, when I talk about the institutions, I mean, you know, to uh, create our own publishing houses, our own theatres, um, of all kinds. It doesn't have to be anything more than along sort of traditional British theatre create our own arts organizations, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, there is a lot of diversity and 
quite a lot of experimentation already happening in British arts of all kinds. So it's not as if that's not happening. It's about who is deciding on what is getting produced and what is getting what is being promoted. There's a wonderful book by um, an anthropologist at Penn by the name of De Deborah Thomas. It's um, That's one of them, but she also talks about um, sort of, um, the exact time, but it's essentially about the construction of black culture in the Caribbean. One of the things she argues, and which I found as a trouble, is that she talks about a, a transnational black culture that's that's linked and pervades through the arts. And there are ways in which music in particular, in ways that are surprising. Um, dance hall, reggae in some ways has connected young people across continents through music and through social media in ways that were astonishing. And in traveling around South Africa, one of the things that I, I found was that a lot of young people on social media are, are connecting with each other and are having these very vibrant conversations about how to change and upend and undo these, these very traditional institutions. And the link that connects them has been music, has been their shared love of music and their shared love of these musical forms. And it sounds like regular dancehall in particular have been very powerful media through which this conversation has continued. It's, it's interesting and surprising, and it, 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 she argues that Thomas argues that it constitutes sort of a, a form of transnationalism that hasn't been, um, she says, studied fully enough. But that can be enormously consequential, both culturally, perhaps politically. Thank you very much, Mr. Uh, Marissa.